0: I want to begin with 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. Please turn in your Bible so that you become familiar with these very important verses. You know that in all our CFC churches... And in all of our ministry in the last 47 years, we have majored on explaining the new covenant and showing how it is superior to the old covenant. This is one of the major things that Paul particularly emphasized and the the book of Hebrews is almost entirely devoted to this one point. And in fact, the entire New Testament epistles. But <clears throat> the early Christians in those churches never, many of them never came to the New Covenant, despite all that they heard, even from the mouth of the Apostle Paul himself. And we see today, as I've, I've been a Christian 62 years, and I must say that I've traveled in many countries, observed many denominations, heard many messages, read many books by Christian authors, and not one of them could explain the New Covenant clearly to me. If you come across a book like that, please let me know. Maybe I missed something, but I couldn't find it. I'm not talking about books which have the word New Covenant in it. When you read it, do you enter the new covenant? That's the test. Not A lot of people speak about the new covenant. A lot of people. But they never lead a person into it. They never explain what it means. They never explain what's the difference. For example, I've hardly ever, almost never, heard anyone say that the first promise in the New Testament is Matthew 121. that The reason why Jesus is called Jesus, his name is called Jesus, is because he will save, not forgive, he will save his people from their sin. And I almost never, not almost never, I have never heard anyone explain the difference between that and Psalm 103, where it says, David says, all my sins are forgiven. Most Christians explain being saved from sin As being forgiven from sin. What they mean is being saved from hell. I'll tell you quite honestly. But deep down in my heart I'll tell you this. I am not interested. In being saved from hell. I'm not interested. In going to heaven. I was. In my backslidden days. When a backslidden means. When I never understood the new covenant. But once I understood the new covenant. First of all. I was not interested in escaping hell. I was not interested in going to heaven. I was interested in being free from sin. I feel sorry for all the Christians whose only interest in life is to be saved from hell. I hope none of you, after hearing the truth for so many years, are only interested in escaping hell. Then I would say you understood nothing of the new covenant. Once you understand the new covenant, you're not interested in escaping hell. You're interested in avoiding sin. And escaping from the power of sin and I'm not also interested now in going to heaven yes I'm interested in being with Jesus all these things happen when you come into the new covenant and that's the test whether you my brother sister have entered the new covenant are you more interested in being with Jesus or going to heaven be honest are you more interested in escaping hell or in avoiding overcoming sin now That's the test. So I've seen that not only other churches, many brothers and sisters in our own CFC churches have not understood the new covenant properly. The proof of it is they get angry. They lust with their eyes and their thoughts. There's not peace in their home. They fight and quarrel with each other, husband and wife. What new covenant is that? That's the old covenant. The Pharisees married people fought with each other. But they went to the synagogue regularly. They sang and they clapped and they shouted and did and all that. It's very, very important. If you have missed the new covenant in your earthly life, I want to say you're going to regret for all eternity. Not for one or two years. You will regret all eternity that in the one life God gave you on earth, you did not enter into what Jesus shed his blood and died to purchase for you and me. I don't want to have that regret when I go to heaven. I don't want to go to heaven and feel so sad that when I look at the love of Jesus he had for me, I'm not talking about reward. Let me tell you, that's another thing. I am not looking forward to any reward in heaven. I'm longing to be with Jesus, period. That's all. Jesus plus nothing. That's enough for me for all eternity. I don't want any mansions or golden streets or any such thing. Because I've seen the reality. That the greatest gift God can give me. Is not even forgiveness of sins. Let me tell you more. Not even overcoming sin. The greatest gift in the new covenant. That God gives me. Is to partake of his nature. When I partake of his nature. 2nd Peter 1 verse 3 and 4. Remember it's one of the most wonderful verses in the new testament. 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. That all it says there that all the precious promises. In the new covenant, all the precious promises are designed for one purpose. Think of any promise. You know, we, 26 weeks of the year, we remember a promise. You know, in our memory verse, 26 verse weeks, we remember a commandment. And 26 weeks, we remember a promise. Okay, take all the promises. And somebody has told me there are thousands of promises in the new covenant. The precious promises are all designed... You read in Second Peter one, verse four, that we might become partakers of His divine nature. You know why Jesus overcame sin? Because He had the divine nature. Tempted, He would overcome it. Tempted, He'd overcome it. And the divine nature was something that was not automatic. Because if it was automatic, then Jesus would be like a robot. He was not a robot. He made a choice. And the devil knew Jesus was not a robot. That's why he tempted him. I mean, if the devil knew that Jesus was a, felt that Jesus was a robot, he, he's sharp. He's cleverer than you and me. You can't tempt a robot to do something. He's programmed to do some things. And if Jesus was programmed to do the right thing, there's no temptation. But he was tempted exactly like you and me, it says. But he had divine nature. He wasn't just all the time just trying to think good thoughts and trying to speak good words. No. Nature. And I praise the Lord that that is what God has wants me to partake of. Yeah, you know the difference between the snake whose nature is to sting and hurt and a dove that's so peaceful and calm. It's nature. So, it's not that we have to constantly fight, fight, fight that morning till night. I have to fight and fight and shut my eyes and grip my teeth. In the beginning, it's like that. That's the early stages. It's like when a person is learning how to swim. He's never swam in his life and he goes into the water, he goes down. Exactly like people defeated by sin. But then one day, He learns how to swim. But it's a struggle. He has to keep on struggling to keep afloat. And then I've seen some expert swimmers swimmers, who sometimes I see them just lying on their back (laughs) on the water as if almost doing nothing. Relaxing. And they don't drown. They may be moving out their feet and hands a little bit but you hardly see it. They have come to an Overcome. It looks as if they've overcome gravity. They've learned how to swim effortlessly. Effortlessly, without an effort. And that is true victory over sin. Not where I have to constantly struggle, 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 struggle. No. Partaking of the divine nature. So let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 3. Here it says, the this is one of the great chapters that distinguish between the old covenant and the new covenant and there are various ways in which the old and new covenant are described here verse is first of all he says god has made us verse 6 adequate as servants of the new covenant we are not Verse 5, we are not adequate in ourselves. That's the first thing we need to understand. What Jesus said, without me, you can do zero. How much can I do without Christ? Zero. How many sins can I overcome without Christ? Zero. Like a branch cut off from the tree, how much fruit can it bear? Zero. It's one of the first things I need to understand. That apart from Christ, I can do zero. I cannot even overcome the smallest little sin apart from Christ. It's the branch constantly dependent on the tree, constantly abiding in Christ, that brings the victory. And anytime you're defeated, it's because you're not abiding in Christ at that moment. The branch doesn't bear fruit because it's cut itself off from the tree. So, we are not adequate in ourselves. Number one lesson, 2 Corinthians 3, five. As to consider as if something coming from ourselves. You can determine with all your heart to overcome. You'll never overcome. Many of us have tried. Oh, I'm going to have this wonderful message. I'm going to fight and overcome. Well, what is the result? Maybe you overcame something and you became proud of it. When you overcome something and you become proud of it, you have fallen deeper. For example, you overcome anger one day. That is a hundred foot pit that you got out of. Wonderful. But you become proud of it. You have fallen into a thousand foot pit. What is the use of that type of overcoming? Getting out of a hundred foot pit and falling into a thousand foot pit. <laughs> we don't see that sin is very subtle. It doesn't, what comes from yourself will only lead you to pride. I overcame anger. I overcame the love of money. I overcame that bitterness. I went and asked forgiveness from somebody and I pat myself on the back that what a wonderful person I am. That is the worst sin of all. It's better you lost your anger than become proud. See, the devil is a deceiver and our lusts deceive us. Without God's help, we won't even know what victory over sin is we first lesson we are not adequate in ourselves to get this overcoming life our adequacy verse 5 must come from god where jesus explained it so clear clearly the branch cannot produce fruit apart from the tree even a child can understand that have you understood that that apart from abiding in Christ, whatever you call victory over sin is only yoga, self-determination. It's controlling anger from the outside. The anger is still in the heart. That's not victory. That's not partaking of the divine nature. That is a deception. And if you live in CFC with that type of deception, you'll get a big surprise when Christ comes again and discover that You are fooling yourself. Dear brothers and sisters, if you hunger, Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will fill you with genuine righteousness. There's a lot of fake righteousness. The Pharisees had it. A lot of today's Christians have it. It's not the real thing. And what a surprise they'll get when Christ comes again. And even if they were sitting in CFC thinking they had the real thing, they never had the real thing. Whatever they had, they were proud of. Please remember this. If you have genuine victory over sin, out of partaking of the divine nature, one of the primary characteristics of it, it will make you a very, very humble person. The more victory you have, the more humble you'll become. It's like I've used the example of the branch that bears the most fruit is the one that Hangs down by the weight of the fruit. Humble. The one that has no fruit or only one fruit, that branch stands erect like this. Genuine victory over sin. Genuinely partaking of God's nature will make you humble because that is the nature of God. Jesus said, learn from me for I am humble of heart. I mean, I'm giving you these general warnings so that we don't deceive ourselves. About what victory over sin is. So first lesson. Our adequacy verse 5 is not from ourselves. It is from God. Then. God makes us adequate. Verse 6. As servants of a new covenant. I believe that's another word we must remember. If you are truly. Entered into the new covenant. You will be a servant you'll be a servant of all people in the church. Your attitude will never be one of, I'm the boss around here. And if you're an elder brother in a church, you'll be a much greater servant than all the others. That's a mark of a true elder brother in the new covenant. The elders and the Pharisees, oh, they were different. They held their heads high and they were big shots among them. But no, God makes us not rulers He makes us adequate as servants. So it's very easy to check ourselves whether we've entered into the new covenant. When you overcome sin and you find yourself overcoming almost all known sin in your life. Has it made you more of a servant? Then you're on the right track. Has it made you more humble? More dependent on God? Then you're on the right track. And He goes on to say, This is not of the letter, but of the spirit. That's the other thing, another mark of a person who's entered into the new covenant. He's not glorying in keeping the letter of the commandment. You know, there's a letter of the law in the Old Testament and the letter of the law in the New Testament, where you take some verse which you are obeying very accurately, and you judge everybody else around you who's not keeping it. It's a mark of a Pharisee. And to be a new covenant Pharisee is worse than being an old covenant Pharisee. There are a lot of new covenant Pharisees. They take the letter of something written in the New Testament and judge others with it and glory that they themselves have overcome it. You know, it's very subtle, this uh Pride is such a deceptive, subtle thing. You have to hate it and fear it more than anything else. This is what prevents a lot of fellowship between people, between husband and wife. Pride, pride, pride. One thinks I'm better than the other. I know more than the other. Yeah, that's what ruins fellowship in a marriage also. So we have to be servants, and we are not measuring on the letter. Right, let me ask you a question. Those of you who are absolutely convinced that a woman must veil her head when she prays or prophesies. So we have churches where all our sisters veil their heads when they come and sit in a meeting because they're not actually praying or prophesying verbally, but as they listen to the message, I mean, this is the right attitude to be when you listen to a message, to be in a spirit of prayer because you're responding to God when I hear God say something to me in a message, I say, Lord, I want to be like that. That's a prayer. That's why a woman wails her head, even though she's not opening her mouth. Because inwardly, she's praying to God. She covers her head in the meeting. Now, my question is, what is your attitude, you who are convinced about this, when you see a lady sitting in the church, a born-again believer, not veiling her head? do you judge her god is my witness i never judge her i'll say maybe she doesn't have light i'll say maybe she's not convinced or she doesn't see the importance of it from scripture she's not seen it merciful what what would you see if a man comes and wears a cap and sits in the meeting that's the opposite. You know, a man must not have his head covered. Here he comes in and sits with a cap. What do you do? You go and tell him, uh, Brother, can you please take off your cap? It doesn't disturb me one bit. Because I don't go by the letter. If that guy has not understood the importance of it, what is he of taking off his cap? Let him sit with his cap. I'm just giving you an example of how New Covenant people can become Pharisees or judgmental of others. How would you react if you saw a brother getting angry? A brother who maybe who was preaching from the pulpit one day in your church and you suddenly saw him losing his temper. Do you judge him? I would not. Because There's a verse in James 4 says, who are you to judge another? God is the only judge. I remember that. Dear brothers, sisters, I want to say one of the clearest marks of a person who has not entered the new covenant is his spirit of judgment. As he looks around at people and This inward boasting, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like that person. You know, that's what the Pharisee said in the temple. He looked at somebody else in the temple and said, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like him. And you know, you can have that attitude when you go to a new covenant church. You can sit there and look at somebody else, maybe, and whatever you compare yourself with him about. I thank you, I'm not like that. Or, I thank you, I can preach better than that guy who's wasting his time in the pulpit. You can really can preach better than that person? Well, well, well. Brother, enter into the new covenant. Then you will not be comparing your preaching ability with somebody else's. You will appreciate them. You'll pray for them. Maybe there's a sincere brother who's struggling to communicate the truth of God according to his ability. There is no comparison. For those who, those who enter into the new covenant, because that's what the Pharisees did. They went by the letter. They didn't live in the spirit. And it says here in Second Corinthians three five, letter kills. The letter always kills. Let me show you another verse before I proceed here. It's a verse I love to quote: Second Corinthians in chapter ten. It's my paraphrase of it. Second Corinthians ten, verse twelve. We don't compare ourselves with others like some do. We don't inwardly praise ourselves. We don't inwardly praise ourselves when we compare our measure ourselves with others and see that we are better than them. Because those who compare themselves with others are Spiritual idiots. You want to be a spiritual idiot? Compare yourself with others. Without understanding. So you see, this matter of partaking of God's nature is a very important thing. It's not just that I overcame this sin and that sin and it's something I was defeated by. I overcame and i become very proud of it. You fell into a thousand foot pit, till now you're in a hundred foot pit, you somehow managed to get out of it, and then fell into a thousand foot pit called pride. You say, Well, then it's impossible. Exactly. It is impossible to live this life without the power of the Holy Spirit, without God giving us His nature. All the rest of it is just human struggle. We are not adequate of ourselves. And when God does it through us, we can never take the glory for it, for anything. We cannot take the glory for overcoming sin. We cannot take the glory for preaching a sermon. There are people who even take glory for the way they prayed in a meeting. Can you imagine? Praying to God and then sitting down and saying, thank you, patting yourself on the back for the wonderful prayer you prayed. This this, this is the evil of human nature. we're we're so corrupt and filthy to the bottom of our flesh that only God can deliver us and make us truly pure. I just mention all this to say that a lot of people who think they're very pure are not pure at all. So let's not look at others and look down on anyone in another church. Let's not look down on somebody in some other church and say we're better understanding than them. Some of them may be humbler than you. So Let's not go by the letter. And then the two covenants are described like this in verse 7. The old covenant is a ministry of death, spiritual death. And the new covenant is a ministry of spiritual life. The ministry of death and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then it's also described here. As verse 9, a ministry of condemnation. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. They condemn others and they condemn themselves also. And they slip up. Perhaps you have, you have set a certain standard before yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm a new covenant Christian, so I should live like this. And then sometime you fail in that level which you've set for yourself. And you condemn yourself. Oh, I didn't come. Oh, I'm really good for nothing. And I condemn myself. That is old covenant. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. The new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. Verse 9. So I want to say a few words about this condemnation. Because I fear that there are many believers. Perhaps some of you listening to me. Who condemn yourselves. Okay, let me show you what Jesus said about it. John chapter 3. We all know John 3.16. I think all of you will know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. Very good verse. What's the next verse? Equally important. God did not send his son into the world to condemn. That's the word used in the King James, I think. To condemn. Very often the word judge in the New Testament, many places when it says don't judge in Matthew 7, one, the meaning is don't condemn people. It's the same meaning. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus came not to condemn anybody, but to save. It's a wonderful verse. If you feel condemned, I'll tell you what you need. You need salvation. You say, but I slipped up. Yeah, yeah, you slipped up. Confess it and finish with it. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. And God says, I will not remember your iniquities anymore. Then why are you condemning yourself? You think that by condemning yourself, you're showing remorse for your sin. No. Repentance is not condemning yourself. Repentance is not shedding a lot of tears. There may be tears. Repentance is turning around, saying, Lord, I never want to do that again. It's an act of the will. There may be tears, there may be sorrow, but we don't spend our time in condemning ourselves. Very often, self-condemnation is because I had a very high opinion about myself. And I thought, I will never do that. Boy, I've I've been part of RLCF and how can I ever do such a thing like that? And then one day you do it and you condemn yourself. Oh, it's good to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I have pretty high thoughts about myself. There is no place for condemnation. So let me show you John's Gospel, Chapter 8. You know this very well-known story of a woman caught in adultery who was brought to Jesus. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, okay, you guys want to throw a stone at her? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. John 8, verse 7. That's all he said. And one by one, John 8, verse 9, all those Pharisees who wanted to condemn the woman went away. And then Jesus spoke to her and said, no one condemned you, woman? She said, no one, Lord. And listen to John 8, 11. This is what I call the New Covenant Gospel in two sentences. The New Covenant Gospel in two sentences. John 8, 11. I don't condemn you. Don't sin again. Got it? That's the message of the New Covenant. I don't condemn you. Don't sin again. Remember that all your life. That is the new covenant gospel. In two sentences. No condemnation. No sense of God. I mean this woman was. I don't know whether she was a prostitute. Or a regular adulteress. Who did it many many times. I don't know. But whatever it is. No condemnation. We're not living in adultery. Even if you were, I'm in repentance. The Lord says no condemnation, but don't take advantage of that. Don't sin again. In our case, it may not be adultery. It may be something else that we are repeatedly falling into. Okay. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin. Did you do it? Yes, Lord, I did it. I'm sorry. I want to turn and I want to turn and face you. No condemnation. I think we need to teach that even to our youngest children in our family. Don't condemn yourself and feel rotten and beat yourself. Oh, I did that. No, there are believers who do that. It's it's a a Roman Catholic teaching. No, I I don't want to condemn Roman Catholics. There are some God-fearing good people among them, even though their doctrines are wrong. But that is one of the things they have taught in the olden days. I've heard about monks and all lying on beds of nails and wearing clothes of got nails in it so that they keep poking and condemning themselves and hurting themselves because of their sin. It's all a lack of understanding of what Christ did on the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses us all from all sins. It's not sleeping on beds of nails that disciplines you to overcome. No, that's all yoga. It's non-Christian religions that teach that. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Surrender to Christ and let the Holy Spirit fill you. Walk in humility before him. And he'll give you the power to overcome and you'll give all the glory to him. You won't touch that glory yourself. So, no condemnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So I want to turn now to Romans and chapter 8. No, first Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 we read he's talking about justification by faith here and then he goes on to say how living under the law brings condemnation. Romans and chapter 5. We are justified by faith. And we have peace with God. Verse 1. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God demonstrates his love for us in verse 8. In that while we were sinners. Christ died for us. And now. It was death. Death. That reigned over everyone, verse 14, from Adam to Moses, but now life, grace. So in verse 16, you see that word coming, condemnation. The gift is not like the one which came through the one who sinned from one hand. Judgment arose from one sin resulting in condemnation. But the free gift results in justification. This is the contrast I wanted you to see. There's condemnation and there's justification. You can't have both. You're either condemned or you're justified. Maybe you've sinned in some something today or yesterday or... A few times, and you really turned from it and you feel sorry for it and you confessed it to the Lord at the end of it. Do you feel condemned or do you feel justified? You can't, there's no neutral position. You're either condemned or justified. It says here, one brought condemnation and the other just delivered you from condemnation. No, it brought justification. That means you're declared righteous. Once you feel condemned and now, it's as if I've never sinned in my life. See, the word justification means declared righteous. So it's not just that it's more than I've never sinned in my life. You know, justified, just as if I had never sinned. No, it's more than that. Because just as if I had never sinned is a negative thing. No. No. Just as if I had been righteous all my life. Here I have sinned. I have slipped up. And according to 1 John 1.9. I came into the light. Confessed my sin. And 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all my sin. And Romans 5.1. We see here. I am justified by faith. In Romans 5.9. The same chapter. Romans 5.9. I'm justified by the blood of Christ. Which means not just, just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I had been righteous all along. You know the difference between not having sinned and being righteous? Not having sinned is a negative thing. Oh, I did not sin. Being righteous means I'm I've lived a positive, righteous life all along. No, that's not true because I've sinned so many times. But when I've confessed my sin and God declares me righteous, it is as if I've been righteous from the day I was born again. Now you look back, you and I look back to the day when we were first converted and we say, boy, I've failed so many times from since that day. I'm painfully aware, painfully aware of the fact that I slipped up and Dishonored the Lord so many times since the day I was born again 62 years ago. But I believe in the blood of Christ. Romans 5.9. Justified by his blood. For me it means not that I never sinned in 62 years. More than that, that I have been a perfectly righteous man. Every single moment of these 62 years. Since I was born again. I want to ask you whether you look at yourself like that. If you don't look at yourself like that, you have not understood justification. You are unconsciously in the spirit of condemnation. You say, well, if it's like that, people will take advantage of that and sin. Yeah, yeah. Those who... Do not love the Lord will do that. But I won't do that. I mean, when God justifies me, I want to be more careful about sin in the future. That's the mark of someone who's partaken of divine nature. He doesn't take advantage of God's goodness. Far from it. The opposite. But this is so very important because I see so many believers and I see the reason for their failure is they have not get out. They have not got out of condemnation. You know this thing. I uh, some time ago I, I want to show you this thing which I drew once. You see this? Two no entry roads. Discouragement and self condemnation. You know what you do. When you see a sign like that in front of a road you're going to enter. No entry. Please remember this all your life. Discouragement, no entry. Self-condemnation, no entry. If You keep that in mind all the time. You will make progress with leaps and bounds in your Christian life and you look back over your life, you may discover that a lot of your spiritual progress has been hindered because of condemnation. You can't believe that God declares you righteous. You can't believe it's too good news to believe. Too good to be true, as they say. Yes, the gospel is too good to be true. But it is true that rotten sinners, God declares not only forgiven, but justified, righteous. No condemnation. And, you know, the common, like I said earlier, the common excuse, but people who take advantage of that. Yeah, those who are unconverted will take advantage of that. Those who are not properly born again will take advantage of it. Let them do it. They're on their way to hell in any case. They can take advantage as much as they like and imagine that they're righteous and go to hell. But a person who's really repented and turned to the Lord, he will never take advantage of this message. No, I believe it with all my heart and I'll tell you this, it has made me more serious in my battle against sin. Much more serious. Lord, you declare me righteous, such a rotten sinner, one who slipped up and failed so many times, even after I was converted and you declare me righteous. How in the world can I take advantage of you, Lord? Impossible. Okay, now we come to Romans 8 verse 1. Romans 8 1 it says. Therefore. There is now no condemnation. For those who are. In Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Brings condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. The well, Lord, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from that. And there is no condemnation. Because, it says in Romans 8.3, that condemnation fell upon Jesus on the cross. He was condemned. And it's not just that he took my sins, he was all the condemnation that i should have he took he was condemned i don't believe any of us have really understood the enormous enormousness of the punishment that jesus suffered on the cross condemned by god 3 hours of being forsaken by god was equal because jesus was an eternal being he never was born or created. He existed from all eternity as the Son of God. When an eternal being suffers separation from the Father even for one second, it's like eternity. So I see that Jesus suffered eternity in hell in those three hours on the cross. I don't know why it had to take three hours. Even one minute would have been eternity for him. But in God's great plan, He hung there for six hours and out of those six hours, he suffered the punishment of our sin only for three hours. When he cried out, oh God, why have you forsaken me? Um, He never called him father then. It was the only time in his entire life when he looked up and said God. Till then all his life it was father, 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 but then God. Because then he was in hell. For three hours. And then he came out of hell. And he could say, Father, I commend my spirit in your hand. It's over. The punishment is over. He said, it is finished. What is finished? He had taken hell for me and you. Therefore, there is no condemnation for me. Rejoice in it, brother, sister, this wonderful news of the gospel. And... I believe it will lead you into a life of real, genuine victory over sin. But coming to here, I want you to see Romans 8.1. Uh, have you heard the statement that whenever you see the word, like it, what is the first word in Romans 8.1? Therefore. So whenever you see the word therefore in a verse, ask yourself, what is it there for? Why is the word therefore there? What is it there for? You must it is connected with the previous verse. You know, in geometry and uh, arithmetic and mathematics, you, you write something and you say, those three dots we have in arithmetic, saying, therefore this. It's connected to the previous line. So what is the previous line? Listen to this. With my mind, I'm serving the law of God, Romans 7.25. With my flesh, the law of sin. Oh, then you should feel condemned. No. There's no condemnation. Have you ever understood the connection between Romans 7.25 and Romans one? It's unfortunate that these folks who divided the Bible into chapters put a division there. They should have put it before Romans 7.14 or something. Or later on in chapter 8. But because they put it right there between 7.25 and 8.1, people don't see the connection between the two verses, but the word therefore indicates it's referring to the previous verse. So let's try and understand a little bit further on, further up. He says in verse 22, Romans 7.22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Everything that God says, I agree with. Yes, I must be pure. In my heart, in my thoughts, in my speech, in my actions, in my attitudes, in my motives. I agree 100% that I must be totally pure in my attitudes to people, in my motives with which I do things. In every thought of mine must be 100% pure. Every word must be with grace. Every action of my mind must be good. I agree with it 100%, Romans 12, 22. And I agree with it joyfully, not reluctantly, I'm sure Most of you can say that. But, this also we can say, verse 23, Romans 7, 23. I see another law in the members of my body, in my flesh, waging war against my mind, which wants to do God's will alone. Don't you know that battle? Warring against, waging war against the law of my mind, which wants to obey God 100%. And making me a prisoner to this other law of sin, which is in my flesh. We all know that. We all know it. You determine today, I'm never going to lose my temper. And by the end of the day, you have to repent. Or you go into a very tough situation and say, It's going to be a difficult day for me, but I'm determined I'm not going to sin. And at the end of the day, you have to repent. You Romans 7, uh, 22, you joyfully concurred with the law of God, but there was a different law in your members, waging war against that purpose of yours and made you a prisoner of the law of sin. So Romans, uh, this is talking about a born-again person. This is the Apostle Paul writing about his testimony. After Romans 6.14, where he says, sin shall not have dominion over me because I'm under grace. This is a guy who has come to victory over sin. But he still finds this struggle. After you get victory over sin, Romans 6.14, you come to Romans 7 where there's a struggle. And he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Have you ever felt like that? I can think of numerous times in my life. Where Romans seven twenty four has been my cry, wretched man that I am, who will ever set me free from the body of this death that keeps on? And I determined not to sing. I said, I determined my not to, determine to control my tongue, but I can't. I determined to keep my thoughts pure, and I don't. Wretched man that I am, not that guy who tempted me, no, not that situation that tempted me. Or that person who provoked me to sin or lust. No, me, wretched man that I am. Who shall set me free from the body of this death? And he says, thank God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is total freedom possible. From this being a slave. To... The lust in the flesh. So until I now I will let me explain Romans 7 25 a little more. Thank God there is total victory possible through Jesus Christ. I'm paraphrasing now. I feel so wretched that I who want to do good am doing so many wrong things. But how will I be set free? Thank God total victory is possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. But until that comes to me in its fullness, I find myself with my mind one hundred percent serving the law of God, but my flesh is still <clears throat> wanting to sin. But even if it's like that, there is no condemnation. Romans eight one. There is still no condemnation. That's the connection between seven twenty five and eight one. I refuse to come under condemnation because I realize I'm going to fight this battle till Christ comes. <clears throat> when I see Jesus face to face when he comes, I will be like him. Do you know that there's one mark of being like him 100% would be there'll be no more battle with sin. As Christ is now, when Christ was on earth, he did battle with sin. We read in Hebrews 5, he prayed with loud crying and tears. And he never sinned, not thought, word, deed, attitude, motive, zero. He was totally pure. But he had to pray with loud crying and tears. But today, Jesus is not battling sin. No. There's no battle at all. He's totally pure, effortlessly. And I'm going to be like that one day. But until I come there, I'm living with this battle. But my attitude is, I will not, I will not condemn myself. If I slip up, what do I do? I immediately go to Jesus. Say, Lord, I'm slipped up. And dear brother and sister, if you're really sincere about it, and you're allowing the not just to see what I'm saying. Don't just understand it in your mind. It's not some relief in the mind I'm trying to give. It's not some type of psychology I'm teaching. You need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone can give what the New Testament calls revelation on his word. And this becomes real to you. And when it becomes real to you, the result will be, there'll be zero condemnation in your life. You'll never condemn yourself like I showed you that. It's a no-entry road. I will not condemn myself. And you'll find yourself much more quickly going to the Lord to confess your sin. And I'll show you, give you another proof that you've understood this message. You'll be much more quickly going to somebody to ask forgiveness when you said a rude word accidentally, or hurt somebody, you you won't think about it and think about it, should I go and apologize to my wife? Should I go and apologize to my husband? No, 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 no. It'll all disappear. You'll go immediately. I'm sorry. That was my mistake. Please forgive me. Have you come there? Your brother? What is it that's preventing you when you know you have said something wrong to someone, or you hurt someone, it may have been accidental, but you did it. What is preventing you from going immediately to that person and saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'll tell you, there's only one thing. is the satanic, satanic pride that dwells in our flesh. That refuses to acknowledge before you'll acknowledge it before God. Yes, you'll go to God and say, "Lord, I slipped up," but that will not humble yourself and acknowledge to that other person, "I made a mistake," because perhaps you've built up a reputation as a saint. The great saint has slipped up. Yes, acknowledge it. There's great liberty. There's great liberty when you realize perfect justification, no condemnation, but I'm not perfect. We press on to perfection. We have not become like Jesus yet. Perfection means totally like Christ. And perfection means I'm not even tempted. I'm coming, one day I'll come to that life when Christ comes again. In heaven I will not be tempted. I'll still have a free will. Some people sometimes ask, if we have a free will, Brother Zach, does it mean one day in heaven I'll sin? Because we have freedom of will in heaven. God's not going to make us robots in eternity. We'll still have a free will in heaven. And how is it that I'm sure that when I get to heaven with a totally free will, as free a will as I have today, I will never sin for millions and millions and millions and millions of years. Lucifer had a free will and he sinned. The perfect angel sinned. How, is, how can I be sure? Because of one reason. I would have partaken of God's nature. that cannot sin. Don't you think Jesus has a free will today? Perfectly free. But he'll never sin. He'll never do a single thing that displeases the Father. I'll be like that, with a perfectly free will, but never doing a single thing that displeases the Father. That's what I that's the eternity I look forward to. Not golden streets and mansions. These are all pictures that the Bible gives us. The reality is. An eternity without sinning. An eternity of pleasing the Father. Not just negatively, I don't sin. That's negative. But positively, pleasing the Father. There won't be 24 hours a day. There's no day and night there. But all the time, pleasing the Father. That's, That's the eternity I look forward to. Because my nature will have become the nature of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of We will be like him when we see him. But till then, I fight the battle. And part of the battle is to humble yourself and apologize when you do something wrong. To to confess to God is easy. But to confess to a man, isn't that amazing that to confess to a holy God You find it easy, but to confess to another sinful person, your husband or wife, you find it so difficult. It is pride. It's this rotten pride in us, which we think we've got rid of. We have not got rid of it. And I believe one of the clearest proofs of that pride is the hesitation to apologize. Or that it takes so long to apologize. If a, if a thorn gets into your foot, how long do you meditate on when to take it out? You meditate on how long should I keep it there? No, you take it out immediately. If a mosquito comes and sits in your hand and bites you, how long do you meditate on how long should I keep that mosquito there biting me? No. It's immediate. I get rid of it. How is it I get rid of a thorn immediately and get rid of a mosquito immediately? Because I know it's going to harm me. Do you know that when you don't ask forgiveness, it's harming you. The longer you wait, the more the infection is destroying you. It's an infection. It's an infection. People are more afraid of sickness is an infection by wound in the hand than they are of spiritual infection even people who think they have understood all about the new covenant I don't want to say anything to condemn you there's no condemnation but dear brothers and sisters I'll tell you if you want to be totally free from condemnation be totally honest first to me walk in the light means be totally honest God loves honest people. Jesus spoke a lot about humility. And one of the primary marks, listen to me, one of the primary marks of a truly humble person is that he's totally honest. Not perfect. That'll wait till Christ comes. But he'll be totally honest. He'll acknowledge the blame. Take the blame. Acknowledges error. There is no condemnation. It is such to such a person that the Lord says no condemnation. And he'll never take advantage of God's goodness. Declared righteous as if you had never sinned and as if you were righteous all your life, every single day from the day you were born again. But I don't take advantage of God now. And then we will experience the reality of that verse which says in 1 John 1, if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship, one with another. 1 John 1 seven, and the blood of Jesus continuously cleanses me from sin that I'm not even aware of. In 1 John 1 nine, he speaks of the sin I'm aware of, which we confess. In 1 John 1, 1.7, he's talking about the blood of Jesus cleansing me from sin, which I'm not aware of. And there's a lot of sin in your life and my life that we are not aware of. We are walking in the light. That means, as far as consciously, we're not committing any sin. and are not aware of any sin. My conscience is not condemning me. But there's still such a lot of unconscious sin in me. That I need the blood of Jesus, 1 John 1 7, to continuously cleanse me from all unconscious sin. So let me explain to you. 1 John 1 7 is referring to unconscious sin. Because you're walking in the light. If you're walking in the light, you're not committing conscious sin. So let me read it like this. If we walk in the light, 1 John 1 7, which as God is in the light, which means you're not consciously sinning at all. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from it, from sin. Which sin? You're not consciously sinning. Then what is the blood of Jesus cleansing you from? From unconscious sin. Then 1 John 1, 9, it speaks about conscious sin that we confess. The sin in 1, verse seven is unconscious, and you cannot confess it because you don't know it. Every day. There's unconscious sin that we commit, we're not even aware of. Some little wrong attitude, which you're not even aware of. As you grow in the Christian life, you become aware of certain things. I mean, as I've grown in the Christian life, I've discovered in my younger days, there were so many things which I didn't realize was wrong attitudes within me. Which we think are right. I gave you one example of that. I keep repeating that many times of uh, how a brother whom he had helped a lot when he went away from Bangalore, never wrote and thanked us or let us know how things are going. And I thought to myself, what an ungrateful guy he is. We did so much for him in the years he was in our church. And he never even, so many years he's gone away and never bothered to write and say anything, not even a word of thank you. And the Lord told me, you are the one at fault, not him. I was shocked. I said, Lord, we helped him so much all the time. He never did anything wrong to him. Yes, your mistake is, the Lord said, that you are expecting him to thank you. The Lord said, you know my word which says that when you help the least of these my brothers, you are doing it unto me. You know that verse in Matthew 25? If you have done something, fed or clothed or helped the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me and and the Lord spoke to me then said if you did it unto me the Lord says then who should you expect thanks from not from that man but from the Lord so I learned that day that I must never in my life expect thanks from anyone the Lord has every right to you know like he said the ten lepers are cleansed where are the other nine he has a right to expect thanks but not me if I helped ten people and only one of them came back to thank me I will not sit back and judge the other nine no I did it as unto the Lord Inasmuch as as you did it to the least of these my brothers the Lord says you have done it unto me and that day the Lord taught me that any good that I do to another person is not really to that person. I've done it for him. I've done it unto him. And he keeps a record of it, and one day he will thank me. Not that I'm waiting for that thanks, because I have to thank him a million times more for what he did for me. But my point is, that word has become very real in my heart. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brothers, the Lord says, you have done it unto me. So from that time, I stopped expecting people to thank me for anything. For blessing them spiritually or materially or physically or in any other way. I mean, it's good for them if they learn the habit of gratitude. That's why we teach our children, say thank you. Say thank you to that uncle or auntie or that person who did some or gave you a gift. We have to teach our children to say thank you. And we must be also say it ourselves, but we must not expect it from others. A very simple principle that I did not know for many years in my Christian life, till God opened my eyes. I'm giving you one example of how we can sin without knowing it. What was my sin? Expecting others to say thank you to me. How many people have ever thought that that is a sin? It's unconscious. That's one example. If you walk with the Lord, the Lord will show you many things like that, which are unconscious and unwillingness to apologize. Nobody thinks that that is a serious sin, but nobody thinks it is a serious sin that you apologize the next day or one hour later. You don't drive the mosquito away from your hand one hour later, you don't pull out the thorn from your foot one hour later. We need so much light on ourselves, but we'll get more light if we live according to the light we have. Amen. God bless you all. May God help us to walk in the light, all of us.